Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. There's a lot going on today, but I feel we've been remiss by not talking about what's been going on in Ukraine more often. So we are extremely lucky today to be joined by Admiral James Stavridis, who is a retired four-star naval officer. He's a former NATO Supreme Allied Commander, and his latest book is To Risk It All, Nine Conflicts in the Crucible of Decision. He is a columnist for Bloomberg, former dean at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. Admiral, thank you so much for joining us this morning. It's my pleasure, Charlie. So let's start off with the most important question. How is the war going? Is Ukraine winning this war? Are we headed for a stalemate? What is your read right now? To answer the question, I think you got to begin with Russia's objectives. So let's turn the clock back about five months. Putin invades. He tells his uh, BFF, best friend forever, President Xi, that, hey, this thing will be over in three or four days, five at the most. Um, Here we are headed into month six. Russia's objective was to take the entire country, decapitate the Zelensky regime, probably literally, and uh, completely control this vast nation the size of Texas, grab all its resources, pull it into the Russian orbit. By any measure, he has failed, um, and he has failed badly. So that brings us immediately to the present. He still holds on to 15% of the country that he controlled since the 2014 invasion, including, most notably, Crimea. The only thing he's been able to add to that suite of uh, stolen land, if you will, is about 5%. So today he sits on about 20% total of Ukraine. Um, I would call that a failure, but it begs the question, Charlie, what happens next? And I think here, despite all of the immense and I think very successful efforts to arm the Ukrainians, despite their extraordinary fighting spirit, despite the remarkable leadership of Volodymyr Zelensky, in spite of all that, I think it's very difficult militarily to envision a scenario in which the Ukrainians can literally push the Mm -hmm. Russians out of the country. So you use the word stalemate. I think that's apt. We're probably headed for something that looks like the Korean War, the end of the Korean War. And armistice and armed demarcated line, think the 48th parallel on the Korean Peninsula, occasional flare-ups, but that massive level of combat that we've seen for five to six months, that probably grinds to a stop, I would say, in the four to six month future. So that's an overview. Apologize for the length of the answer, but there's a lot to, to mention in all of that. What difference has the shipment of the HIMARS made in the combat that's going on right now in the last several weeks? Has it changed any of this momentum? 
I think it has. And these are surface-to-surface missiles, highly accurate. Um, We put them in the hands of the Ukrainians. What it does, Charlie, is it allows them to reach out and destroy logistic, what we would call in the military, log heads, um, where we assemble logistics 50, 60 miles behind the front lines. Ukrainians really didn't have a system that could do that. And, you know, I always say about war, about the military, you know, the amateurs are focused on the strategy. The professionals are looking at the logistics. So the degree to which the Ukrainians can continue to break apart Russian logistics will give them momentum. And that's why you're currently seeing pretty serious discussions of a Ukrainian counteroffensive probably directed at the city of Kershan in the south-central part of Ukraine. It controls the approaches to Crimea, controls the water supply into Crimea. HIMARS has been a key to all of that. Well, let's talk about the global crisis created by the shutdown or the slowdown of grain shipments from Ukraine. There was a UN-brokered grain export deal. Well, let, let me, let's let's talk about whether or not that's going to hold because it felt like uh, within a, a day or two of this deal to keep the grain flowing, um, the Russians were, were back firing missiles at Odessa. So where are we at in terms of keeping the flow of grain moving? Yeah, let's start by simply observing something that's uh, bad news in the current context, which is that Ukraine and Russia collectively provide about 30% of the world's grain, wheat, calories, however you want to articulate it. So with Russia being sanctioned and Ukraine effectively knocked out because their grain is bottled up, uh, it is a significant blow to global food supplies it's going to create food insecurity, and unfortunately, it will be targeted at the places where Ukrainian grains dominate, and that would be North Africa and the Middle East, regions of the world that are already somewhat unstable. So the bad news is um, this is a significant global food crisis. One of my other uh, positions is I'm chairman of the board of the Rockefeller Foundation, and we're spending a lot of time looking at food scarcity and food insecurity. So that's kind of the problem we're trying to solve. The good news is that, as you mentioned, um, about uh, 10 days ago, uh, Russia and Ukraine, under the auspices of Turkey as a convening power and under the umbrella, if you will, of the United Nations with significantly the presence of the UN Secretary General Gutierrez, um, were able to hammer out a deal it's a complicated deal, Charlie. It sets up a operations center. It puts in place a convoy system for the grain shipments to come out under escort and to be inspected on their way in so that no weapons can come in on these presumably empty grain ships. Mm-hmm. Um, very complicated. And if that weren't hard enough, all these waters in the Northern Black Sea are full of mines put there by the Ukrainians defensively and the Russians essentially offensively to create this blockade. So A, we've got to find a way to create a safe passage zone through these minefields. Um, NATO can help do that. The Ukrainians know generally where they put the mines. The Russians know generally where they put the mines. Um, So that can be worked over a matter of weeks. Um, Then you've got to get 
uh, commercial grain shippers comfortable with insurance and the idea of taking this kind of risk, then you've got to coordinate all this mm. from a center. So it's a very complicated problem. I'll close with this. Uh, Russia, in the immediate aftermath of signing this agreement, launched several caliber missiles at Odessa, damaging those port facilities, kind of a one step forward, two steps back kind of thing. Overall, however, I would assess that this deal will go through, mainly because Putin knows if he doesn't fulfill the terms of this agreement and get that grain out, there's a high probability, in my view, that U.S., NATO, the West will simply crack the blockade and escort those ships in and out. Okay, th that's what I wanted to ask you about, because before this deal uh, was brokered by the U.N., you had proposed naval escorts to protect yes. the vessels that are transporting the agricultural products. And you suggested that could be under the auspices of the U.N. or NATO or a coalition of nations led by the United States, maybe including France, Britain, and perhaps some of the other Black Sea nations like Turkey, Romania, and Bulgaria. Now, I guess the big question there is why that hasn't happened so far. And would it be a military action? Because when this has been raised in the past, people have said, well, that's going to lead to uh, conflict. If you want to get closer to World War III, you know, that's what would happen if you had these ships going into the Black Sea. So talk to me about that and whether or not you think that's a real prospect. It is a real prospect, and we need only look at history um, to, to help us think about this. In the 1980s, young Lieutenant Stavridis was assigned to a guided missile cruiser. Our mission was to escort tankers full of oil out of Iraq and Kuwait, generally Kuwaiti oil tankers, through the Strait of Hormuz, which the Iranians sought to close. They put mines in the water. They harassed the civilian shippers. We solved that problem by reflagging those Kuwaiti tankers, put a U.S. flag on them and parked a guided missile frigate destroyer or cruiser alongside every one of them, took them in and out. There wasn't, frankly, anything the Iranians effectively could do against that. So there is certainly precedent for doing this. Now, your point, Charlie, is a good one, which is risk. And as you mentioned, my latest book, To Risk It All, is an assessment of making hard, complex decisions under time pressure. That's what we have right now. Um, my own assessment, and it's arguable proposition, my own assessment is that while risky, it is highly unlikely that Vladimir Putin's Russia would actively attack a U.S. naval warship, a NATO warship, a U.N.-flagged warship, um, while it was conducting humanitarian operations, taking grain out of Ukraine. It's possible, but I think it's highly unlikely it would put him into a conflict that he couldn't handle at sea. We would, frankly, take apart the Black Sea fleet in a matter of days. He knows that. So we've talked about food. Let's talk about energy, uh, you know, Nord Stream versus American mm. liquid natural gas. You, you tweeted recently that uh, the Putin treats natural gas like a crack dealer. Uh, <laughs> so and, and, and he's reopened the, the Nord Stream pipeline after a 10 day shutdown. And you pointed out that what Putin is trying to do is keep Europeans dependent on him and he needs the cash so how should we respond to all of this? I mean, what, what lesson have we learned about the Nord Stream pipeline, which seemed like such a good idea uh, in the beginning? 
Yeah, I got to tell you, Charlie, I spent four years as the Supreme Allied Commander in NATO. And every time I went to a summit with the heads of state and government, so Barack Obama, David Cameron, Nicolas Sarkozy, I would ignore them. I would make a beeline for Angela Merkel. Hmm. And I would tell her two things consistently for four years. A, don't sign up for Nord Stream 2. And believe me, I was part Hmm. of a chorus of people telling the Germans that. And B, you've got to get your defense spending up, Madam Chancellor. Well, she would, for four years, she would sort of pat me on the head and say, you're a nice admiral. Neither of those things are going to happen. Vladimir Putin, in four months, has managed to convince the Germans to walk away from Nord Stream 2 and raise, effectively double, their defense spending. So that's a long way of saying, I think the Germans have woken up and and smell the Wiener schnitzel and they know that um, they cannot continue this dependency on Russian gas. So what's Putin doing? He will, he will turn the tap on. He'll turn it off. He'll have maintenance. Oops, we can only provide 20%. But he wants to do everything he can to slow down the momentum to get to alternatives to Russian gas. The Europeans are smarter than that. And they are at full speed ahead, if you'll permit me a nautical uh, metaphor, full speed ahead for a liquefied natural gas. And this is good news for America, good news for our energy sector. And by the way, it's not going to take them five, 10 years to build these LNG terminals. They, they will have these completed in the next 12, 18, maybe 24 months. They're coming online rapidly. Um, we need to respond to that over in the U.S. and increase our capacity. We can make this an Atlantic project that is uh, better than anything we've seen since the Second World War, and it would wean them from natural gas. And Putin will do all he can to play that crack dealer role, give them a little taste here and there. Uh, but I assess the Europeans are going to stick together on this one. I think they've learned something over the last six months. Well, let's talk a little bit about NATO. Uh, your, your former NATO Supreme Allied Commander, and just a few years ago, uh, there were suggestions that uh, NATO had perhaps outlived its usefulness. Uh, we had a president uh, that seemed uh, very, very ambivalent about NATO's role and our role in NATO. Vladimir Putin seems to have revived NATO in a rather extraordinary yeah. way. I, so talk to me about your reaction. I think a lot of the world was has been surprised by how robust NATO's response has been. Yeah. Uh, Vladimir Putin ought to get an award as the NATO salesman of the year. Um, (laughs) Not only has he revived the existing alliance, he has personally managed to convince two powerful military nations, Finland and Sweden, who have historically treasured their neutrality, refused to join NATO. Both have applied for membership, have been accepted for membership, We're in the process of ratifying that right now. We had a slight speed bump with our Turkish Mm -hmm. friends. That's done with. So NATO will not only be together at the 28 nations that went into this conflict uh, with the current manifestation, but it will add two very capable nations, Finland and Sweden. Charlie, these are turnkey militaries. They don't need help from us. They'll be buying weapons from us. It's nothing but good. Um, In terms of NATO and its longevity, hey, think about it this way. Think about NATO like a computer program. NATO 1.0, that was the Cold War, massive NATO versus Warsaw Pact, millions of troops nose to nose across the fold of gap in Europe. That went on for decades. NATO 2.0, 
was, I would say, the NATO I commanded. We had about 150,000 troops deployed around the world, maybe 200,000 when you add up Afghanistan, Libya, the Balkans, piracy, all of those missions. That was NATO 2.0. You're correct. As we came out of Afghanistan, there was a sense that, well, we can just kind of put NATO on the back burner. This brings us back to Vladimir Putin, who demonstrated both in 2014 and more remarkably here six months ago in 2022, um, that he is not a spent force and that the alliance needs the kind of robust capability that you're seeing on display now. We're at NATO 3.0. It's not going anywhere soon. What about Germany? You you talked a little bit about Germany. There's been a lot of complaints out of Ukraine that the Germans have been slow and reluctant to provide the kind of help that the Ukrainians would like and that other countries have provided. So give me your take on the way Germany has responded to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I think you need to begin by by framing Germany as in, in its historical context um, since unification of East and West Germany uh, just over 20 years ago, uh, there has been a, a, a stream of thought, no pun intended on Nord Stream, but a stream of thought in Germany that, look, we can work with Russia. We can pull them toward the West. We can have strong commercial relations with them. And so as a result, the Germans who have no desire to recreate the conditions of the Second World War, having been the nation that arguably suffered the most as part of it, have been ambivalent about stepping forward. Now, having said all that, Charlie, in my four years as Supreme Allied Commander, the Germans stood and delivered again and again. Um, You just have to kind of understand their historical concerns Mm -hmm. and the background, Um, which brings us to Ukraine. I think they were somewhat slow off the mark. What really turned the corner for them was the um, horrific human rights violations, the rape, the murder, the pillaging, the looting that occurred, particularly around Kiev. You know, Kiev is a European city. If you're a German, you look at Kiev and you think, wow, that looks a lot like Berlin or Dusseldorf or Frankfurt. You can really visualize the Russians showing up and, and flipping a switch the way the Russians have frequently in history. And don't forget, uh, the Russian Red Armies at the end of the Second War- World War literally raped their way across Germany. The elders in that society remember all that very well. That has turned the key for the Germans. They are now moving with alacrity. They're manufacturing artillery. They're participating in this HIMARS deployment Um, They are providing a great deal of financial assistance. It's interesting to me, the two European countries that at this point are leaning the furthest forward are the Germans and the Poles, the two nations that have suffered the most historically from the Russians. No surprise. So I want to talk to you about uh, your book, To Risk It All, Nine Conflicts and the Crucible of Decision, and also about the way the world is looking at American leadership. But I I want to ask you this, though. What worries you the most right now watching this this conflict? And, and at the back of my mind, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, Amer- Joe Biden said, you know, America is back. Um, many Europeans seem to be thinking or saying, yes, but for how long? We have notoriously short attention spans. You know that the world was focused on Ukraine um, intensely. Now it appears, you know, our attention has drifted off. 
What worries you most right now about American leadership in the world? What worries me is precisely what you just pointed out, which is that we have this tendency to flip a switch, bring in a new administration, and our international policies don't have the kind of continuity that we enjoyed previous, shall we say, to the fall of the wall. Um, once that occurred, we, we kind of lost that sense that politics stops at the water's edge. Now, having said that, Charlie, um, I'm actually heartened by the bipartisan support mm -hmm. at the moment for two things. One is Ukraine. And I think we will stay focused on this. And, and same in Europe, where they have their domestic politics as well, simply because uh, Putin has given us such a clear-cut case of utter violation of norms of international law, horrific war crimes, devastating impact on the world economy. Um, he has really made it pretty easy to bring mm -hmm. both sides together. The other place where I feel a lot of continuity, generally speaking, is on China. I think there's broad consensus that runs from uh, Lindsey Graham, Tom Cotton in the Republican side to uh, Joe Biden or uh, any of his leadership team, Jake Sullivan. There's a a very broad consensus that we better wake up if we're going to face China effectively in the 21st century. Um, bottom line here, sure, I'm worried about the divisions in American society like we all should be. We all ought to be working to try and pull toward uh, finding candidates who can reach across the aisle, can, can construct real compromise. Um, but what I worry most about it is, because it's my wheelhouse, is when it drifts into the international sphere. So far, I think we are doing pretty well on this, both in Ukraine and China. But when I talk to my European colleagues, um, they would say the same thing you started this segment with, you know, what's, what's to guarantee us that you won't flip again and have different policies? And, and frankly, the uncomfortable answer is it's possible we could change. So let's talk about your book, which is very interesting. I mean, NPR described it this way, that it's about what civilians can learn from decisions made in the heat of battle, that leaders have to learn how to think and make decisions in moments of high stress and danger, like when you're faced with an active shooter, a car accident, or someone is drowning. I'm really haunted by one of the stories that you tell in the book, that sometimes doing nothing is the right response. And you, you talk about this uh, moment in the 80s, when, as you mentioned earlier, you know, the Navy was escorting oil tankers in and out of the Arabian Gulf, and you were a tactical action officer on uh, one of the cruisers with the capability to shoot down an incoming aircraft, and you saw an incoming aircraft. Yeah. So tell us that story. I, I can. It's, it's haunting. Yeah. yeah. It's going back to something we talked about just a moment ago. This is during the escort operations for these Kuwaiti tankers. I saw an incoming aircraft on radar. It looked like it was flying a profile that could have been an Iranian attack aircraft. I was very concerned coming right at the ship. I had the batteries release authority from the captain. I was ready to flip the firing switch. And at the last minute, I just felt something wasn't quite right in this profile. And my captain reached over and kind of touched me. I couldn't tell if he was trying to encourage me to fire or not. But I took my hand off that firing key, Charlie. Um, it turns out that aircraft was a civilian Airbus, an Iranian 
uh, commercial aircraft. We all sighed a huge sigh of relief, put our defenses back up, continued evaluating. Um, what is really haunting is that uh, in the months ahead, another cruiser, another tactical action officer faced with the same circumstances, flipped that firing key, took the shot, um, shot down an Iranian commercial aircraft, killing 150 civilians. A, a tragic moment for the U.S. Navy, obviously much more tragic for the families, women and children, men on that aircraft. It, it goes to show you in crisis, sometimes you have to try and make time slow down and take mm -hmm. a moment, and take a breath. That's one of the many lessons in to risk it all. Yeah, I mean, you come up with this tactical list, you know, know what you value, know your strengths and your weaknesses, make good decisions based on facts, don't make decisions based on emotions. And I think one of the most valuable that really struck me is don't get locked into a position, have the courage to change your mind, yeah. to recognize that, that, that as facts change, maybe your tactics ought to change. These are these are powerful lessons. Uh, and I really Can I add one yeah, more to, to your excellent yeah. list? Um, and and it's, it's a simple one, but it's physical fitness. It is doing your best, and, and we all have different levels of physical fitness and proclivities toward it, but do your best to be active, to be able to maneuver, to work out when you can, to get enough rest. And, and those are easy to say and hard to do for so many folks. But when you go into crisis, in addition to all of the philosophical things you've mentioned, sometimes your, your physical state will matter and matter a great deal. And being prepared for those moments also means being prepared to lead a healthy life that, that makes you physically fit in a moment of crisis. Admiral James Devridis, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. The book is To Risk It All, Nine Conflicts and the Crucible of Decision. Thanks for your time, Admiral. My pleasure, sir. Thank you. The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast, and we'll be back tomorrow to do this all over again.